0: Welcome to Awaken to Grace. Today I begin a brand new series called Walking with Jesus, a study through the book of Mark. And you know, my friends, I cannot wait to walk through the pages. Of Mark with you. There is so much that we are going to learn together. I know that the power of God's Word is going to transform our lives throughout this entire series. Well, today we're going to meet a man right off the bat in Mark 1, and he's a leper. He's going to break the law. He's going to break all cultural protocol, and he's going to approach Jesus. He's going to implore him, beg him, kneel before him, and say, if you will, you can make me clean. And you know what, my friends? You know what we're going to learn today? We're going to see the willingness of Christ, not just his authority, but his compassion and his willingness. And just as Christ was willing to touch that leper, Christ is willing to touch you and your life today. Imagine what it would have been to walk physically with Jesus, to go town to town with him, village to village. Imagine what it would have been like to watch him cleanse lepers, to open literally blind eyes, to watch him raise people from the dead, Imagine what it would have been to meet each of the characters, to know their backstory, and to see before your very eyes the transformation that came into their life. Imagine what it would have been to walk with Jesus. Well, over the next many weeks, we are going to walk with Jesus, and we're going to do it through the book of Mark. And my goal today is I want to help you gain such an appreciation for the way that John Mark wrote his gospel. I want you to gain such an appreciation for the construction of the book, for the narrative of the book, and I want you to see that as we meet the first miracle that Jesus is going to perform in the gospel, I want you to see the beginnings of it. I want you to see the foundation of it. I want you to understand why the book of Mark was given to us by the Holy Spirit. I hope that you find, as I have found in preparation for this, I hope you find the gospel of Mark absolutely riveting. I hope you find it exhilarating. I hope you find this a thrilling journey because literally the book is written to where you and I can walk with Jesus from town to town, from miracle to miracle. I'm gonna give you some background today, some things that you may wanna write down. And the reason why I feel like the background is so important in the introduction is because if you're like me, it causes the text to become even more real. It causes it to come alive as I ponder what the Lord gave us in these incredible pages. If you're going to take notes, let me just give you a little bit of background. Number one, I want you to note, Mark is the shortest gospel of all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest. But yet, even though it is the shortest, it has the most recorded miracles than any of the gospels. And what I have felt the Lord lead me in the preaching in the first part of this year as we are working our way, many of you will remember a couple of years ago, we did a healing community Sunday. We invited the community and we did a healing service. Say amen if you were at that service. Amen. It was a mighty day. And let me tell you, God healed many, many people. There were physical healings. People, God healed people emotionally. You wouldn't believe the emotional scars that were healed that day. Mental issues were healed that day. Spiritual things were healed. Past hurts were healed. It was a mighty, mighty day. And I felt the Lord say, May 1st. May 1st. I want this to be, again, May 1st. We're going to call it By His Stripes Healing Sunday. Well, I kept feeling drawn to the book of Mark the way that I felt drawn to preach through the book of Acts and to preach through the book of Revelation. And I kept feeling a pull, like a magnet. I kept feeling drawn to Mark. <laughs> so I hear the Holy Spirit say, May 1st, Healing Sunday, May 1st. And I kept feeling drawn to Mark, and I kept thinking, well, how can I, how can I preach through an entire book in that short of time? And Mark is 16 chapters. So I asked my Alexa device how many weeks there are between January 2nd and May 1st. And guess how many weeks there are? 16. And I said, Message heard, Lord. Okay, we'll do it. Amen. And in knowing that this was the direction the Holy Spirit wanted to take us, even at that, I could not imagine how thrilling prep work for the book of Mark has been. It has been like drinking from a fire hydrant. It has been exhilarating to me. I want you to note this. Mark is the shortest of all four Gospels, yet it has more miracles than any recorded Gospel. And what I felt the Lord say is He wants us to study those miracles leading up to May 1st. Why? Because faith comes by hearing And hearing by the word of God. Amen. How many of you would love for your faith to be built this year? You would love for your faith to be strengthened. You would love to be solid in your faith. That no matter what temptation comes. No matter what fierce trial comes. No matter what tragedy comes. No matter what Satan may try to throw your way. Your faith is not shaken. That's what I want for my life. And the book of Mark is going to do that for us. We're going to walk with Jesus. And we're going to see miracle after miracle. Today we're going to see the leper. We're going to see how the leper came to Jesus and asked the question that so many ask, is Christ willing to touch him? Like many of us, it's not a question of, is God able? We know God is able. (laughs) It's not a question of does God still heal today. No, we know God still does miracles today. The question is, is Christ willing? And we're going to get the answer to that out of Mark chapter 1. But first, I want you to understand and I want you to appreciate the way that the book is written. Now, maybe you've wondered before, why are there four gospels? Have you ever wondered that before? Why are there four? And as a matter of fact, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels. Why are they called synoptic? They're named that because syn, S-Y-N, is from where we get the word synonym, which means what? The same. Optic means perspective, the same eye. In other words... Matthew, Mark, and Luke are drawing from the same content. So when you read those three Gospels, you you find the same characters, the, the same stories, sometimes even verbatim text. But yet it's from the different perspective of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But yet it's the same content. Now John is very different. And why is the Gospel of John so differently? Well, we know Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written near the same time period. It was written about 60 A.D. to maybe 65 or 67 A.D. in that five or seven year time period. And I'm gonna explain to you in just a moment why that's so important to understand. But the book of John was written about 25 years later. So the gospels had already been in circulation among the churches when John penned his gospel. John was the last remaining eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And he gave us the book of the Gospel of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why are there four Gospels? It's because it's gonna be similar content, same optic, synoptic, but it's from different perspectives to give us one picture of Jesus. Now, Mark is going to be the shortest. Now, actually, Matthew would be the shortest, shortest, if you took out the discourses of Jesus. But see, Matthew was a tax collector. And you know what had to be a qualification to be a tax collector? You had to be able to write shorthand. And you know how the Holy Spirit used that? Because Matthew could write shorthand, he was able to capture verbatim the discourses of Christ. If you take the discourses out of the book of Matthew, then Matthew is shorter than Mark. But Mark is written in a way, and if you're going to take notes, here's what I want you to understand about the book. Mark is written in a way that it creates urgency to our faith. Mark is written, it's almost like a fast-moving script. It goes extremely fast, and there's a reason for that. The people that Mark was writing to was a very different audience than the other Gospels. Again, if you're gonna take notes, you may find this interesting. The book of Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. That's why he begins with a genealogy. He begins with a legal genealogy beginning with Abraham to Christ to prove to a Jewish mind, to a Jewish audience that Christ is the Messiah. Luke was written to a Greek audience. Luke focuses more on what Jesus felt, and the humanity of Jesus, and he begins with a blood genealogy, beginning with Abraham all the way to Christ, again, to prove that Christ is who he says he is. John is very different. Now, John, whereas Matthew's written to a Jewish audience and Luke is written to a Greek audience, John writes to the universal church, and do you know what kind of genealogy John begins with? A divine genealogy. What's the first few verses? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see the difference? Matthew gives a legal genealogy. uh, Luke gives a blood genealogy. Well, John gives a divine genealogy. Matthew written to the Jews. Luke written to the Greeks. John written to the universal church. But who does does Mark write to? Mark writes to the Romans. And Mark does not begin with a genealogy. And I want to show you why today. Look at verse 1 with me. Mark is going to write to a Roman mind, to a Roman church, to a Roman world and a Roman way of thinking. And when you can understand that, you can understand the style that Mark writes in, and then you can appreciate what that does for your own faith. So he begins in verse 1. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Oh, friends, there's a world to unpack right there. Let me give you just a little bit more background, and throughout the next several Sundays, I'll be giving you a lot of background on the book of Mark, but if I give it all to you today, it's going to be too much, and I'm so excited, and I'm going to give it all today, but I'm going to resist the temptation. If Matthew's gospel was written by Matthew, Luke by Luke, and John by John, was it John Mark who wrote the book of Mark? I believe the answer is yes and no. Like many, I believe, that Mark could have been written by the Apostle Peter. And let me show you why. And I'm going to show you the context, the world into which John Mark pens this gospel. And when we understand the context of that, oh, it's going to help us in our own faith. I believe that Peter actually dictated the gospel of Mark. And I think Mark was almost like a stenographer, I think he captured what Peter wrote. The reason, I begin, the reason I believe this is because just as Paul had Timothy as a son in the faith, Peter had John Mark as a son in the faith. He refers to John Mark in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3. He refers to Mark as a son, affectionately as a son. And do you remember when Peter was arrested in Acts chapter 12 and James was killed by King Herod and Peter was gonna be executed on the very next morning and do you remember what happened in Acts 12? The church gathered to pray and an angel of God rescued Peter. Do you remember the story? An angel showed up in the cell and a bright light came and Peter is sound asleep. (laughs) I don't know about you, but could you be sound asleep the night of your execution? That's how much faith Peter had. He was so asleep that the Bible says that when the angel appeared with the bright light, the angel had to strike him on the arm to wake him up. I could picture the angel showing up and going, Peter. Peter. Peter! <laughs> and he strikes him in the arm. Peter, get up! I mean, it's almost comical. And the chains fall off. And Peter and the angel get to the iron gate. And the Bible says the iron gate opened of its own accord. And Peter gets out into the street. And you know what? The whole time, it's so surreal. Peter thinks he's dreaming. And the angel vanishes, and Peter realizes, Oh, this is no dream at all. This is, I'm free. And then comes the prison. No, I'm kidding. It didn't do that, but you can picture that in your head. And do you remember where Peter goes? Anybody remember the scriptures? He went to a woman. To her house, the woman's name was Mary, and there was a prayer meeting at her house. You know who Mary was? She was John Mark's mother. Hmm. Mark grew up around prayer meeting. Mark grew up around the things of Jesus. We believe he was about 12 to 15 years old when Jesus was crucified. Do you remember in Mark 14, the young boy who was wearing linen cloth? You know what that was? That was his pajamas. And at the Garden of Gethsemane, when they arrested Jesus, do you remember a young boy, the guards grabbed, and he was able to escape out of his linen cloth and ran home naked? Anybody remember that? Guess, Matthew don't record that, Luke don't record that, John doesn't record that. You know who records it? Mark. You know why? Because I bet you that was Mark that followed Jesus and his disciples to the garden. And here Mark is, now he's around Peter. He's being mentored by Peter. Peter was friends with his mother Mary. Barnabas was related to Mary. They were most likely, John Mark was most likely Barnabas' nephew, perhaps cousin. And here John Mark is around the things of God. And now in Peter's old age, when Peter's uh, getting up into his upper 60s, and John Mark is probably around maybe his mid-40s. They go to Rome together. And Peter calls him his son. And I believe that Peter dictated this gospel and John Mark recorded it. Another reason I believe that is because how fast the book moves. If you're going to take notes, you may find this interesting. In the original language of the Bible, in the Greek language, there are 11,022 words to the book of Mark. 11,022. Of those 11,022, do you know how many times the word and appears? A A-N-D D. 1,084 times. Do you know what that means? Every tenth word is the word and. So when you read the book, it's almost like a shooting script. It's almost like a a fast-moving script that you would read. And so it reads, and then, and then, and then, and immediately, and then, and immediately. And what happens? The book moves in such a swift way. Why is that? Well, number one, because I believe Peter wrote it. And if you carefully document Peter's ministry from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 12, what you find with Peter is how fast Peter moves. He moved incredibly swift. And so the word immediately, if you're going to take notes, note this. The word immediately is found about 45 times in the entire New Testament. The word immediately is found seven times in the book of Matthew, once in the book of Luke, and 41 times in the book of Mark. Now, the question is why? If it's true that Peter mentored a John Mark, if it's true that they went to Rome together, if it's true that Peter dictated this gospel while John Mark recorded it, if all of that were true, Well, then what is the main point of the book moving so swiftly? Look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, see, there's no genealogy to Mark. There is to Matthew, there is to Luke, and there is to John. But not Mark. Mark. Where does Mark go? Here's what he says. If you're going to take notes, note this. The beginning, the word beginning there in the Greek is archae, which is where we get our English word, archaeology. What does archaeology mean? It's the study of beginnings. So in the original Greek manuscript here, the, word, the definite article, the, is not in, in, in the Greek language. So the way it would read is beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the study. It's that archaeology. It's that beginning of where does the gospel come from. And this is so huge. And I don't want you to miss this. The whole center of the book, the whole purpose of the book is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. And Mark says, I'm going to take you to the beginning. I'm going to show you where it came from. I'm going to show you how it came to be. And let me tell you, let's just make sure we are clear on what the gospel is. Let me tell you, my friends, the gospel is not a philosophy. The gospel is not a religion. The gospel is not a statement of faith. Do you know what the gospel is? It is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. It is his life, it is his death, it is his burial, and it is his great resurrection. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The gospel is the ability of Jesus Christ to transform your life. The gospel is God's ability to step into your mess, to step into your past to step into your confusion, to step into your hurt today, and to rescue you out of the pit of sin. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the archaeology of it. It's the beginning of it. The gospel of who? Jesus Christ. Now, let's understand. We understand the construction. It's fast-moving. It goes quickly. but why? Because of the audience. OK, I'll, I'll finish that in just one second, but look at verse one. If it's the archa, if it's the archaeology, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The Son of God." Now, there's something fascinating about the Book of Mark. The, the, the whole pivotal point of the book is smack in the middle. There's 16 chapters in chapter eight. It's the pivot of the book and it's where Peter confesses Christ as Lord. Do you remember that? Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, some say I'm Elijah, some say I'm a prophet, some say I'm that, but who do you say I am? And do you remember what Peter says? Thou art the Christ. And Jesus says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Spirit of God. That's the pivotal point of the book. And let me tell you the reason the book is written the way it is. Say amen if you're with me right now. Now, you and I as the reader, we know who Jesus is. It's in verse 1, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And who is he? The Son of God. And it's interesting that as you follow in all 10 chapters, in the first 10 chapters, there is Jesus casting out demons, which is fascinating. We spent the whole month last month studying angels. And let me tell you, you better realize how real demons are. And 25% of the recorded ministry of Jesus, a quarter of his recorded activity on the earth was spent casting out demons. Don't tell me it's not real. He casts them out and he tells you and I how to deal with the demonic. And it teaches us how to deal with demons in our day if we do it like Jesus did. But here's what's fascinating to me. And this is the point of the way that the book is written. You and I know who Jesus is because it tells us in verse 1. And as he casts out demons, look with me at verse 22 in chapter 1. Let me just prove it to you. In verse 22, we see that Jesus comes and people begin to recognize his authority. And in verse 23, he's going to encounter a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. And in verse 24, look what the demon says to Jesus. I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, Now say amen if you're with me. Don't miss this. There's a tension in the book. And the tension is that the demons know who Jesus is. But his followers don't. So Jesus will cast out a demon and his followers will go, Who is this man that has such authority? Jesus will calm the storm on the sea and his disciples will scratch their head and he'll say, Who is this man that even the waves and wind obey? He'll feed the 5,000 and they'll say, who is this man with such power? And we're the reader going, we know who he is. He's the son of God. How is it that even the demons knew? But his followers scratched their head and couldn't figure it out. That's why the pivotal point of the book came in Peter's life in chapter 8. When he gets it, he really figures out who the Lord is. And so it is for the reader today. See, you may know about Jesus. But that doesn't mean you know Jesus. And there's many of you listening today. You have not quite got it yet. But you wait, Peter. It's coming, and the Lord's going to reveal himself to you. Amen. So the book is written, I think, in a fascinating way. There's an urgency to it. Now, why is there such an immediacy? Why is there such an urgency to the book? Let me tell you why. If it's true that Peter dictated the gospel, if it's true they're in the city of Rome, if it's true that their audience are Roman believers, what's going on in Rome right now? Well, at this moment, Nero is emperor. The book was written in the early 60 AD. Nero was a ruthless, godless, bloodthirsty, wicked, insane man, and he violently persecuted Christians. You can look it up. Nero had a magnificent garden. And do you know how Nero would light his garden? He would hoist believers of the Roman church up on large poles. And he would light them on fire. That's how that wicked man lit his garden. So when John Mark writes to the Roman church. What's going on? He's saying this. It's the archaeology. This is the beginning of the gospel. It is of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But where does the book end in chapter 16? There's probably a footnote in your Bible, as there are most reference Bibles and study Bibles. There's probably a reference note in chapter 16 that in the original manuscript, the chapter ends in verses 8 and 9. When we get to chapter 16, I'll explain how the rest came about and why it's the inspired word of God. But just follow me for right now. Where John originally ends his story is with the women coming from the tomb that Christ is raised. And if you read verses 8 and 9, it's like the book stops abruptly. Why would John Mark have done that? Because you know who he's writing to? He's writing to Roman believers who needed an urgency to their faith. He's writing to Roman believers who they may be the next on Nero's pole. He's writing to Roman believers that the person that right now you're sitting beside in your row here at church this morning, they may not be here next Sunday. They may be in jail. They may have lost their property. They may be facing persecution or they may have been beheaded. That's the audience. And so he writes with an urgency, with a cadence. He pushes them. He ushers them to a decision. If this is the gospel, if this is Jesus Christ, if this is the son of God, then make your decision. Follow Christ. And he ends with the women at the tomb. They had a decision to make. Are we going to go forward with Christ? And this is the audience that he's writing to. So as we study the book, yeah, there's going to be a get up and go. There's going to be an immediate. There's going to be a straightforwardness. There's going to be a cadence. There's going to be a gallop to it. And we're going to, we're going to walk briskly through the book. Why? Because your faith Demands a response. Go to verse 40 with me. Today, I want to take just a few moments and I want to introduce you to the first miracle that John Mark shows us of Jesus. Now, why would John Mark give us this miracle to begin with? Verse number 40, if you'll follow along with me. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. I love that. Verse 41, and being moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And listen to what Jesus says. I will be clean. Are there sweeter words in the gospels? And Jesus saying, I will. The next verse, and immediately, see, there's our word. It's all through chapter one. And immediately, the leprosy left him and he was clean. And Jesus sternly charged him not to tell anyone, but to go to the high priest and to show himself as Moses had commanded with an offering to show proof. (coughs) And what did the man do in verse 45? He did the exact opposite. He blurted it out to everybody. And the fame of Jesus grew. And what's the last phrase of verse 45? What's the last phrase of the chapter say? That Jesus could not go anywhere because of the crowds. And what happened? People came to see him from every quarter. Now let's understand a couple of things briefly this morning. If you're going to take notes, I want you to note this. Throughout the entire scriptures, leprosy was one of the most feared diseases in all of Bible days. Throughout the scriptures, it always represented a type of sin. It always represented sin. It was a type of sin, I should say. And leprosy, today, uh, it is not as feared like it once was because in these days, there wasn't a cure for it. Today, there is a cure for it. Today we call it Hansen's disease is what is the the term for leprosy. Some years ago I had the opportunity to go to Vietnam and we smuggled Bibles into pastors in Vietnam. It was a thrilling trip and in that certain trip they took us out into the country and took us to a leper colony and we were able to minister to lepers and able to lay hands on them and pray over them. It's a fascinating thing. Today, especially in our country, we don't fear leprosy because of the treatments. But you have to understand, this man that comes to Jesus on this day had no treatment options. Matter of fact, the scriptures and Jewish culture was quite clear. If you did have leprosy, you were completely isolated. Talking about quarantine, it was a permanent quarantine. You were not allowed around the public. You weren't allowed to live in society. And if anyone did approach you by law, you had to shout out unclean so that they kept their distance from you. So, for the fact that this man, even, re- even the fact that he comes up to Jesus and he kneels before him is against the law. He had no business being that close to Jesus, especially being a rabbi. But this man was desperate. This man was willing to break protocol. He was willing to break the law. He was desperate for Christ to touch him. Let me tell you, my friend, you know when God will move in your life is when you get desperate. You know when God will move in your marriage? You know when God will move in your family? You know when God will move in your heart and in your life? It's when we get desperate. And this man was desperate. And he he broke the law. He broke protocol. He kneels before Jesus and he says, If you will. Oh, isn't that the question today? Is Christ willing? Well, I want to show you Well, I think that's such a powerful question. He did not ask if Christ was able. Catch that. He didn't ask if Christ had the ability. He asked if Christ had the willingness. If you go back in chapter 1 to verse 22, as I mentioned earlier, verses 22 and 27 notes that Jesus came with authority. Now, why is that so important to understand? Now, see, Matthew's going to present Jesus to the Jew, Luke to the Greek, John to the universal church, but Mark's going to present Jesus to the Roman mind. It's interesting to note, the way that John presents Jesus in his gospel, John Mark, I should say, is as a servant. The key verse, I believe, is chapter 10. The son of man did not come to be what? Served, but to do what? But to serve. If you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be the servant of all, right? So Mark presents Jesus as a servant. And I find that interesting because, you know, Mark was from a wealthy family. His mother, Mary. Apparently had some wealth because she had such a large home that could accommodate the Jerusalem church. And the Bible speaks of her hired servants. John Mark knew what it was to be wealthy and to come from a background of hired servants. And he presents Jesus as a servant. And how did this servant come? What are the beginnings? What's the archaeology of the gospel of Jesus, the son of God? He came as a servant with great authority. See, my friends, that's why he can forgive sin. That's why he can heal diseases. That's why he can do miracles. That's why he can rescue out of the pit of sin is because Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Amen. But do you know how else he came? He not only came with authority, but look at verse 41. He came with compassion. It is one thing for someone to have great authority. It's a whole other for someone who has authority, who has as much compassion. And when this man breaks the law and kneels down in front of him and begs for Christ, and implores him to touch him, you know what happened to Jesus? He was moved with compassion, he was moved with pity. Friends, do you want me to tell you how the Lord sees you today? Psalms chapter 103 tells us that our heavenly father is moved with pity. He has pity on his children. Amen. (coughs) Many of you know you can, listen, you can love children. And I do love children. Gosh, before I had kids, I had no idea about kids. (laughs) They'd come up to church and hug my leg and I would think I see now do they talk yet and they're like five. <laughs> but now that I've had children, understand some of the stages. Boy, kids are so much fun. Little kids in our church. Oh, I love them. They'll come, they'll hug me. They call me Pastor Chad. They draw me pictures. I don't have the heart to tell them I'm blind, but I take them. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> But I appreciate it so much. Listen, you may love children deeply today. You may be called to work with children. But how many of you know you don't have the love, the compassion for all children the way you do your own children, right? And let me tell you God loves humanity. He provides rain for the just and the unjust alike, He provides food for sinner and saint. He provides shelter, and God is good to humanity. But let me tell you who he loves. Let me tell you who he pities. Let me tell you who he corrects. Let me tell you who he disciplines. Let me tell you who his anger does not kindle toward, his children. And to as many as believed on him, to them gave he the right, the power, to become the children of God. Amen? God has pity on you today. God has compassion for you today. And if something in your heart says, but if I come to Jesus, will he turn me away? No, the Bible says he doesn't turn a one away who comes to him. He'll have pity on you today. He'll have compassion toward you. And see, here's the good gospel news. Here's the archaeology. Here's the beginning of the good gospel news of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that if you come and you implore of Jesus today, you come and you seek Jesus today, let me tell you, he not only has the authority to change your life, he has the compassion to do it. (sighs) What a Savior. And see, every one of us are in the same boat today. Every one of us have the leprosy of sin. Every one of us had the exact same diagnosis. A leper could not help themselves. Let me tell you, leprosy, your skin would rot. The nerve endings would die. You could put your hand in a fire and not feel it. You could step through a nail and not feel it because the nerve endings were dead. And as the nerve endings died, so did the skin. And the skin would rot and the skin would fall off. And they would have to bandage their skin together. Friends, can you imagine the stench? Can you imagine the mess? Can you imagine the hurt? But when this man came to Jesus, the stench didn't bother him. No, he touched him. And let me tell you, precious friend, today, the stench of your past The stench of your sins does not scare the Lord Jesus Christ today. He will touch you and he'll change you. Amen. So Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. And Jesus said, I will be clean. Verse 43, and immediately... Ethos is the Greek word there, E U T H O S, and 41 times it's in the book of Mark. Ethos, and ethos, immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. But now Jesus is going to instruct him. This is very bizarre, but there's a purpose to it. Verse, where am I at? 43, I think. And he's going to strictly, he's going to sternly charge him that he's not to tell anybody. Now, why would Jesus do that? I think, now listen, Jesus wasn't worried about the authorities. He was all authority. He wasn't worried about Herod. He wasn't worried about Rome or Caesar Augustus or Tiberius or any of these. He wasn't worried about the Sanhedrin or the chief priest. The point is that God had a timing to things. And when the right time came, the Son of God would be made the Passover lamb at the right time. And Jesus tells him, don't tell anyone. But I think there's a deeper purpose to that. And I'm going to share with you that deeper purpose on the last phrase of verse 45. So let me save that. Now, let's understand this. And I'll, I'll begin to come to the closing here. Verse 44 Jesus tells him something very interesting that you and I, our Western years, will miss this if we're not careful. Jesus tells him to go to the priest, present himself with an offering as Moses had commanded and let them examine him and as proof that he's been made clean. Now, why would Jesus tell him to do that? You have to go back and understand Levitical law. So if you go back, if you ever tried just to sit down and read the book of Leviticus, it can be a chore. (laughs) There's so much detail. And where we miss it in our Western minds is we try to read it and we try to make sense of all this detail. And it doesn't make sense to us. What we have to do is we have to take the new covenant. We have to take what, what is the reality of the new covenant to the shadow of the old covenant. And we have to combine them and we have to say, oh, there's the meaning and the purpose. Everything in the law points to Jesus. All of the rituals, all of the offerings, all of the sacrifices, every detail points to the Lamb of God being slain for the sins of the world. Everything. So that when you and I get to heaven in Revelation chapter 5, and when no one is worthy to take the scroll, it is the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world that's going to take the scroll. And we're going to shout, worthy is the Lamb. And everything from Genesis to Revelation points to that very moment. So Leviticus 14, let me explain to you what happens. Say amen if you're with me right now. I talk to people all the time. I'll ask them a question and I'll think, oh, they're not listening. And you know what they're doing? They're nodding their head yes. But a blind man can't see that. I bet a lot of you as I'm preaching, you're, you're nodding yes with me, but I can't see you. Let's understand this. Why did he have to go show himself to the priest? Understand Leviticus 14. If someone was healed of leprosy according to the law of Moses that God gave Moses in Leviticus 14, this was the ritual. This is what you had to do. You had to go present yourself to the priest, let him examine you. And then the priest had to take two birds. They killed the one bird. They put blood on the live bird. They applied blood and they set it free. Now, why would you suppose they did that? If sin is death, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. If the results of sin is death, then what must we have? Life. And what is life? The life of the flesh is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So you had to have animal sacrifices over and over and over. And why did you always have to have animal sacrifice? Because man always sins. But when Christ, who was the Lamb of God, became the Passover Lamb for us, and His blood was shed once and for all, according to Hebrews, that was enough for all time for all sin to be forgiven in our life. That's why you and I don't shed blood today. We have the blood of Christ applied to us. Amen? And it's sufficient. Animal blood was not sufficient. Christ's blood was sufficient. Now, so they were to take the blood, put it on the live bird, and release it. What did that represent? The death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. You see that in the old law? But something very interesting happened. They then took the blood, and watch this. They would take the leper, the person who was so broken and so diseased and given up for dead. And here this man or woman would be healed by the grace of God and they would take the blood and look what they did. They put it on the right earlobe. They put it on the right thumb and they put it on the right big toe. Now, why would you suppose God ordained that? And then that wasn't enough. Do you know what they did next? They then took oil. Do you remember what oil represents throughout the entirety of the Scriptures? The Holy Spirit, amen? And on top of that blood, they would then take oil and the priest would put it on the man's right earlobe, right thumb, and right big toe. Friends, you cannot apply the Holy Spirit to a life until the blood of Jesus has been applied to a life. Amen? And do you know what it represents? What does the Bible say the way you and I get our faith? Faith comes by what? If any man has an ear, let him hear. Does that mean our floppy ears? No. It means if anyone wants to know truth, if anyone will receive truth, then let him hear it. And you know what happens when the blood is applied to your life? When the oil of the Holy Spirit is applied, let me tell you, the carnal mind cannot receive the things of God. But when the blood and the Spirit is applied to a life, you'll receive the things of God into your life. Amen. Amen. And then doesn't the scriptures go further? We are not to be, according to James, hearers only of the word. We're to be what? And so the blood and the oil was applied to the right thumb. Faith without works is dead. You and I are not to only be hearers. We're to be doers of the word. It is to reprove us, correct us, encourage us, guide us. Oh, we ought to receive the word of God like a welcome mat in our life. We ought to receive all of God's word into our lives. And then, why is it applied to the big toe? Because you know what you and I are to do? When we hear the word and when we do the word, you know what the result is? Oh, we begin to walk according to the spirit. Amen? And when you walk according to the spirit, Galatians, you do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And instead of living in sin, you live in the spirit. Why? Because the blood has been applied and the oil has been applied. And you are now cleansed from your sin. You're now a leper that has been made whole by the grace, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Can we say amen to that today? And now, lastly, verse 45. So the man goes everywhere, telling everybody <laughs> what Jesus had done. Now, why did Jesus tell him not to? I think there's a reason. And this is, I think, the reason. If you will, just give me another five minutes here. And let me, let me tell you my heart in this matter. You and I are not to keep quiet about Jesus. Jesus. You and I are to tell our story. You and I are to share the gospel. See, I think the difference was this man wasn't empowered by the Holy Spirit. But now, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you know what happens to us? When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, when the blood has been applied and the oil has been applied, and we are now baptized and filled with the precious Holy Spirit, do you know what he does? He empowers us to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And now we who was a leper, we who were deadened by the condition of sin, we who implored Jesus to touch our lives, now we have the ability to tell everyone what Jesus has done for us. We are witnesses of Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to our broadcast today. I did want to take just a moment and mention our store. If you go to our website, awakenedtograce.com, just navigate to the store page and you're going to find music by all of our Awakened artists and plenty of books by Pastor Chad. Also, while you're on the website, you can view Pastor Chad's story about his blindness and what the Lord is doing through him through Awakened to Grace and through our church preaching Christ Church. Thank you so much for joining us today on Awakened to Grace.